Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the List Podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List Podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Strange and Scary Mysteries of the Month, November 2019. Strange and Scary Mysteries of the Month is a compilation of the weird, disturbing, and downright baffling stories currently happening in our world. From UFOs to serial killers, ancient sites, mysterious creatures, and even ghosts, these are the Strange and Scary Mysteries of the Month for November 2019. Number 5. 9-Year-Old Charged with 5 Counts of Murder It was April 6, 2019, when a fire engulfed a mobile home at Timberline Mobile Home Park close to Goodfield, just southwest of Chicago. The fire spread so fast that within minutes, the entire home was up in flames. Only one person managed to get out, Katie Allwood, but her family, including her two children, Damien, who was two, and Ariel Wall, who was one, her grandmother, Kathleen, who was 69, her niece, two-year-old Rose Alwood, and her fiancé, 34-year-old Jason Wall, all died inside while the fire broke out. During the investigation, police were shocked to find out that the cause of the fire was arson, and the person that started it was Katie's own nine-year-old son, Kyle Allwood. According to Allwood, her son had just been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and ADHD, along with a mild form of schizophrenia. Even though the boy wasn't arrested, the local prosecutor charged him with murder. Many are shocked by the pronouncement, citing studies that show children under 10 years old do not have a full grasp of consequences because their brains aren't fully formed. But for the prosecutor, while it was a difficult decision to make, they say that it was the right move. Katie Allwood believes her son simply made a mistake and that he should be forgiven. Meanwhile, Katie's sister, the suspect's aunt, believes her nephew should be held accountable. She says that her nephew needs to go somewhere until he's legal age to go to juvie, then from juvie to prison, 
because at the end of the day, whether he meant to do it or not, he knew what fire did. In the United States, it's rare for a child under 10 to face serious criminal charges, but it's happened before. In 2018, at least 62 juveniles under the age of 15 were charged with non-negligent manslaughter and murder. Number 4. Mutilated Bulls in Oregon In July of 2019, the 140,000-acre Sylvie's Valley Ranch reported having lost five young and healthy Hereford purebred bulls under mysterious circumstances. They were even more mystified when they found the animals. The first one was found in a ravine in eastern Oregon. There were no signs the animal was shot or attacked by predators. There was also no indication it had eaten poisonous plants. This bull was discovered with all its blood drained and its sex organs, as well as the tongue removed. Several days later, ranch hands discovered the other four bulls, around one and a half miles away from where the first one was. These animals also suffered the same fate as the first. The curious thing was that there were no obvious tracks discovered around the carcasses. A similar case had occurred in the 70s when various livestock were found mutilated along the Midwest and U.S. western areas. During this incident, the same things happened to their cattle. Their internal organs were harvested and some part of their faces were even taken away. When the recently mutilated bulls were examined, police believed the animals were tranquilized before they were killed, then the animal's blood was drained before the various parts were cut out. Officials have received countless calls from locals speculating on who were responsible for killing the bulls. Some said it was deliberately done to cause financial harm to the ranchers, while others speculate the killings may have been done by a cult operating in the area. The case remains unsolved. The Oregon Cattlemen's Association is giving away $1,000 as reward for any information. Meanwhile, the Sylvie's Valley Ranch is offering $25,000 as a reward for any information leading to an arrest. Number 3. Ursula Herman It was September 15, 1981, the first day of the new school year. Ursula Herman, a 10-year-old German girl, returned home in etching. Shortly after arriving, she left again to go to her gymnastics class. After that was finished, she headed to her cousin's house to eat dinner. By 7.20 p.m., her mother called and told Ursula she needed to get home. Although it was late, it was still light, and the bike ride would only take 10 minutes. But 30 minutes later, there was no sign of the little girl, so her mother called her aunt's place. To her shock, her daughter had left the home 25 minutes ago. Within an hour, the police and the family were already combing the wooded path trying to find Ursula. The police brought in a sniffer dog and they found Ursula's bicycle. It was 20 meters away from the path, but there was no sign of the little girl. Two days later, the family began receiving cryptic phone calls. The phone would ring and the family would hear a short, familiar jingle coming from the traffic bulletin at the Bayern 3 radio station. Then there would be silence, and afterward, the jingle would play again. Over a period of several hours, the family would receive the phone calls. By then, police had set up a station inside the Herman home and were recording these eerie messages. By noon, the day after she had gone missing, the postman delivered an envelope addressed to Ursula's father. It was marked urgent. Inside was a ransom note demanding the family pay 2 million Deutschmarks for the release of the girl. 
The kidnappers added they would call the Hermans using a jingle as a sign, and all they needed to do was tell them if they were going to pay or not. A second ransom note was sent to the home, this time detailing where, when, and how to send the money. The Hermans waited for more instructions, but no phone calls or letters were received after that. After 19 days, another thorough search was done in the wooded area near where Ursula's bike was found. At 9.30 a.m., one of the officers gave out a shout. He had hit something solid while probing the soil in the area. The officers wiped away the leaves and the layers of clay to reveal a blanket covering a lid. They pried the lid of what seemed to be a box the size of a small coffee table to find the lifeless remains of Ursula. The autopsy revealed that she had died within 30 minutes to 5 hours from when she was kidnapped. She had been drugged by the kidnappers then placed inside the box. The box itself was the most curious and menacing thing found at the crime scene. It was buried 6 feet into the ground and measured 2.5 by 2 feet. It seems the kidnappers intended for Ursula to survive several days, even behind bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, large chocolate bars, biscuits, and even chewing gum. There was also a small collection of books and a portable radio. The kidnapper also added a ventilation system that reached ground level. The problem was they didn't realize the oxygen would run out if there wasn't enough air left to circulate. Police believe there was more than one suspect because the box itself was heavy and would have required at least two men to carry it. The case went cold for a while, but recently police arrested a suspect named Warner Mazurik. He was deemed a primary suspect early on when an alcoholic confessed to police that he dug a hole in the forest for him. But sadly, the witness recanted his testimony and couldn't even pinpoint the location of where the box was placed. While officers are sure they have the right person, many are starting to doubt if Mazurik is indeed guilty of the crime. There has been no solid proof linking him to the crime scene, and the key piece of evidence against him was a tape recorder that was said to have been used to play the jingles and the kidnapping phone calls played to the family. Ursula's brother believes the real killer is still out there and that Mazurik might be innocent of the crime. Today, the case of Ursula Herman remains a mystery. Number two, researchers discover the origins of humans. A group of researchers say that modern-day Botswana, just south of the Zambezi River, is where modern man first originated, calling it mankind's ancestral homeland. By studying mitochondrial DNA, the genetic information passed down from the female line Researchers concluded modern humans came out of the once lush wetland in Botswana. While many scientists agree modern humans emerged from Africa, the exact location was always uncertain. According to anthropologist Vanessa Hayes, a senior author in the paper about the research, the findings suggest everyone walking around today could trace the origins of their maternal and mitochondrial DNA back to modern-day Botswana. The reason why maternal DNA was used is because it isn't mixed with paternal DNA, so there are fewer variations over time. This then provides a clearer picture of the distant relatives we have. All humans share a group of genes dubbed as L macro haplogroup. This L branch is divided into two subgroups, L16 and LO. The LO gene is the one found in the people of Southern Africa 
and this is the gene the research team analyzed. Tracking back, this LO gene led researchers to conclude all humans descended from one woman who lived in what is now known as Botswana some 200,000 years ago. However, there are other researchers and anthropologists who argue it's inaccurate to say mankind originated from one place. After all, some fossil evidence was obtained in Ethiopia and was dated back to 195,000 years ago. Anthropologist Ryan Rom, a researcher of African population genetics, thinks the study conducted by Hayes and company has one big flaw. They didn't go back far enough in the genetic timeline before starting their trace. Even though the research points to the origin of the LO group, the majority of the mitochondrial DNA of people in this world can be traced to the L16 subgroup, not LO. Rom adds, if you want to find a single origin for our species, then researchers need to find a genetic origin who lived before the LO and LI6 split happened. He continues that the data doesn't conclusively prove that anatomically modern humans originated in southern Africa, but says it's likely humans had multiple homelands scattered all throughout the African continent. Another issue many are finding with the Hayes research is that it only studies maternal DNA and not nuclear DNA, which is where our genetic material resides and is inherited from both parents. Number 1. Lisa and Tiffany Stassi Lisa and Carl Stassi first met in 1983 in Alabama. Soon after, Lisa got pregnant and the two ended up marrying. On Christmas of 1984, the couple had a huge fight and Karen Moore, Stassi's aunt, took Lisa and her four-month-old daughter Tiffany to Hope House, a residential facility in Kansas City. At the same time, John Robinson Sr. went into various hospitals, shelters, and approached social workers saying he was running a program to help downtrodden women. He called it the Kansas City Outreach Program. This is where he met Lisa Stassi. Lisa told family members about it, and Robinson gave Lisa free room and board while she studied for her GED. The mother and daughter were staying in room 131 at the Roadway Inn in Overland Park in January of 1985. Lisa told relatives Mr. Osborne, John Robinson's alias, was paying for everything, but her sister-in-law warned her to be cautious with the situation. On January 10th, she told her sister-in-law that Osborne was looking for them, and that was the last time anyone would see her. Later that day, Lisa frantically called her mother-in-law, saying unknown people were forcing her to sign documents and that her mother-in-law had tried to gain custody of Tiffany, claiming she was an unfit mother. Carl's mother reassured Lisa that this was false and not to believe them. She also warned her not to sign any papers. Lisa calmed down and terminated the conversation by saying, Here they come, and this was the last time anyone ever heard from her. The next day, Lisa's sister-in-law reported her missing. Police traced Robinson and discovered his history for embezzling employers, securities fraud, and stealing company supplies. Robinson told investigators Lisa arrived at his office with a man named Bill. The two said they would move to Colorado to start a new life. Although police and FBI were suspicious of Robinson, they didn't have proof he was responsible for the disappearance of the mother and daughter. Through the years, Robinson spent time in and out of prison, 
1999, he faced numerous sexual assault charges for luring women into rough sexual situations. Authorities reopened the investigation on him and discovered he was linked to a storage facility in Kansas. It was here they found the bodies of five missing women stuffed inside barrels. Authorities also searched his property and found more bodies buried there. In July of 2000, two more charges were brought against Robinson. This included a murder charge for the death of Lisa Stasi in 1985 and aggravated interference with paternal custody charge for the kidnapping of Tiffany. By this time, Tiffany was already 15 years old. She knew she was adopted but didn't realize under what circumstances. Neither did her adoptive family. Tiffany was adopted in January of 1985 by Don Robinson and his wife. Don is John Robinson's brother. The couple had been trying for five years to have a child and decided it was best to adopt. John told his brother that a young mother had just committed suicide and her child was up for adoption. He presented them with legitimate-looking adoption papers, asked for the fee payments, and handed over baby Tiffany. The couple later renamed her Heather Robinson. When news of John Robinson's arrest hit the family, Don broke down. He couldn't fathom the extent of his brother's crimes and betrayal. He also feared he would lose their daughter. DNA tests conclusively proved Heather Robinson is Tiffany Stasi. Police believe John Robinson killed Lisa just hours or days before he handed off Tiffany to his brother for adoption. John Robinson was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole after reaching a careful plea agreement with the Missouri court. He is currently held at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas, where the Kansas Supreme Court found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Heather Robinson was officially adopted by Dom when she was 18 years old. She lives with her current family, but has maintained relationships with her biological grandmother, Patricia. Even though there are eight official victims tied to John Robinson, many believe he may have killed other women. In 2006, the body of a young woman in a barrel was found in Iowa, close to where Robinson once had a business partner. Her identity remains a mystery today. So there were the strange and scary mysteries of the month for November 2019. Every day we encounter strange and mysterious stories that most of us don't know what to make of. These are just a handful but there's still so much more to uncover. If you enjoy watching this video, then please subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell. We have new videos coming out every Wednesday and Saturday that we know you'll love. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.